fools. No. <laughs> Going twice as long. That's what's about to happen. Any of you that were excited, you're wrong. Uh, Acts 13 is where we're going to land this morning if you have your Bible. If you don't, there should be some around on the ground. Please take that. Um, if you don't own one, we want you to see God's Word. We want you to make sure that um, I'm not some babbling idiot up here that's just making up what I want, but this is coming straight from God. So uh, as we're getting started next week, there's a guy who's not here right now, Mike and Sarah McCord. Uh, Mike is the guy, Sarah is the girl. Um, that is their last Sunday, next Sunday. So he'll be preaching, um, and then they're loading up their U-Haul and moving to, I always say it wrong, St. Louis. St. Louis? Kansas City. That, I knew I was going to say it wrong. It's all like Midwest, whatever, just that region. Um, and so, man, just as an in- encouragement for them, if you want to write them a letter uh, or anything like that, I'm sure that that would mean a lot to them as they go up there. They've started their own missions organization, um, and so they think that's a, that, well, the Lord has really led them to um, believe that is a better central location for them to land. Um, and so they, yeah, they both just became members here, which stinks because um, they're incredible people, and now they're gone. So um, if you just want to write a letter of encouragement, I know words of affirmation speak volumes to both of them, um, and so that will be that will help uh, as ascending for them. So um, as most of you guys know, we have taken a break from teaching through the book of Luke, um, and we are working on celebrations of discipline, um, which sounds just very counterintuitive, celebrations of discipline, that doesn't make sense. And um, I referenced a book last week, which uh, some of y'all gave me a hard time about. Um, Jocko Wilkins, who's a big Navy SEAL, wrote a book called Discipline Equals Freedom. Um, and of course he did. He's a Navy SEAL. Like that is no way for us to run a church like a Navy SEAL. And I would argue uh, maybe we should. Um, but, but so every week we've talked about the importance of discipline and why discipline is important and, and where that falls into the Christian life. Um, so, I, and I want to push, I'm intentionally pushing that envelope hard. Uh, but every, so, every couple of weeks I'm going to swing it the other way to make sure we don't get out of balance. Uh, because we see clearly the picture of the gospel is not that more discipline leads to salvation, right? Um, we see that God regenerates our heart. He saves us. And then from that new heart, um, then that discipline keeps us running back to the cross, running back to Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's not the other way. And being in the South, being in the Bible Belt, it's all so easy for us. I mean, there's, there's maybe not all of you, but the majority of this room, if I were just to tell you one thing to do this week that would make you feel spiritual, you would love that. Pastor, just tell me what to do, I'm going to check off the box, and then I'm going to be done with Christianity, I'm going to go back to watching the World Cup and being a pagan. That's what you would love doing. I know there's games happening right now, and if I see anyone checking their phone, I'm taking it up. You you think I'm playing. I see you. So that's what we, I see you back there. Uh, That's what we're looking for. That's what we want to understand is that we are preaching these disciplines not so that we can earn salvation, uh, but the assumption here as we're teaching these disciplines is that you guys know and treasure and love Jesus. And we're going to grow into the freedom that comes to the discipline of just knowing Christ in a deeper level. I mean, I'll say it this way. I've got four kids, um, which it's just, I was listening to Jim Gaffigan talk about having four kids and it's so real. Have y'all heard of this? Yeah. It's like, oh, you got your hands full. It's like, yes, tell me something I don't know. How about you help instead of watching us miserably go through Kroger right now? Um, and so as I'm, I don't even know where I was going with that. 
I was just laughing this morning about Jim Gaffigan. What was the point? Oh, um, so taking my wife on a date uh, is, is discipline. We talk about often that we don't date enough, and here's why. It takes the discipline of picking and putting a date on the calendar, making sure we have a budget line item for date nights, and making sure that we can line up a babysitter, making sure that all the kids are healthy and okay, and that no one's going to puke on the babysitter. Like, There's all these steps that take place for us to go out on a date, but once that date takes place, that does not mean that now we are married, that we are disciplining ourselves to go on a date because we are married and we experience this freedom that comes and we wonder why we ever had kids. So that's what we're talking about here is let's work on discipline so that we can understand the freedom of Christ, but please never misunderstand, uh, scriptures never understand this sermon or the sermon series that there's any way that discipline can lead to salvation. That's not the point of this. Are we clear? Just had to make sure on that. So um, Acts 13, 1 through 3 is a quick, simple little passage, but the implications of this passage are just mind-blowing. And so um, as we get started in here, we're talking this morning about the discipline of fasting. Now, I know most of us in here, and I know we love to feast, right? So fasting, I'm just going to have to appeal to the stomachs for a while. Uh, but in general, fasting is nothing that's been heavily pushed as far as evangelicals. In fact, from 1861 to 1954, no one published a book on fasting. 1861 to 1954, there were zero books written on the idea, the subject matter of fasting, so just kind of let that soak in for a second. I, I, if we had time to do a survey, I'm, I'm sure all of us would feel maybe more uh, inexperienced about the concept of fasting and what that means. We might have done it sporadically here or there, but fasting is just not a discipline that we really press into. And so one of the reasons we, uh, uh, because of this reason and because of the Bible, honestly, um, our elders have chosen to fast every single Wednesday. Um, and I say every single Wednesday, let me just be honest before you and before the Lord, uh, we're horrible at it. Uh, we've actually chosen one of the elders, uh, Greg, to send a text message to all the elders. Hey, it's Wednesday. Don't forget to fast. And, and I would argue, well, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. I see that, and I still choose to forget sometimes. Yeah. Choose to forget is the key word, right? Um, so know that the elders, we're trying. We see this biblically. We want to be a fasting elder board. We want to fast for the church. Um, but sometimes it's just difficult. And so we're going to hopefully understand why here soon. Acts 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, notice here what's taking place. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, there's, there's so much happening. I mean, again, this is just a quick three verses. So what I want to do is just kind of make some observations, work our way through this, and hopefully we can understand the implications and why fasting is important. Just 
excuse me, just based on these few quick sentences. But, but before we do, there's three um, kind of like legs to the stool that we need to see that is taking place. Because we all have core values, right? We all have things that, that drive our decisions, that drive what we do and how we do it. So for the branch, we've got Jesus everything, your story matters, people matter. And um, we can explain that. Those are our big core values. But uh, for the church at Antioch, here's what we see. We see prayer, we see worship, and we see fasting. From Acts 13, 1 through 3, these are their three major core values that they're centered around, prayer, worship, and fasting. And for us, we could probably say, yeah, we would totally agree to prayer and worship. But what we need to learn from the church in Acts is that fasting is just as important. So as we start to understand what fasting is, maybe, maybe let me outline just a simple definition of fasting from John Piper. Fasting is a desperation, a longing for God to break in and change me, to love my wife, to have patience with my kids, and evangelize my neighbors. So in its simplest definition, fasting is a desperation. Fasting is a desperation, is a longing for God to do something. And so we can just straight out the gate understand that we don't fast because we're not desperate. That we're not longing for God to do anything. That we are so comfortable in our American lives that we're not pleading with the Lord. We're not longing for anything. We're not desperate for anything. And what we're going to see throughout Scripture is fasting is always led in desperation. And desperation leads us to Christ. So here are just four simple observations that we need to discuss. They're, they kind of rate in from smallest to biggest. So don't think I'm going to go through all these points as quick as I do the first. The first one that we got to see is this was after Christ's coming, right? So, so we understand Christ comes, he dies, he's raised again. We see Acts 1 and 2, he ascends into heaven. Um, Pentecost breaks out, the church goes crazy. And then here we are in Acts 13. And this is huge. Um, because there's going to always be this undertones of fasting isn't for the local church anymore. That you might hear this, you might have been taught this. Uh, it's just poor theology that would say, you don't have to fast. Um, you don't have to do this anymore. That was just Old Covenant. That was Old Testament stuff. And where they're always going to go to is Matthew 9. So flip with me real quick to Matthew chapter 9. Again, just to understand the basis of fasting, we have to be able to argue some points here. And the fact that that some would say that fasting isn't for today. It's just wrong. Matthew 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Seems pretty obvious, right? Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and worse, a tear is made. Verse 17, Neither is new wine put in the old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine spilled from the skins and destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So there would be those that would say fasting is the old wineskin. We need to put in the new wineskin, which is freedom. 
we're free. We don't have to fast anymore. And I would say, yes, we don't have to fast anymore. But when you line up with verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Martin Luther would say it's not Christ's intention to reject or despise fasting. It was his intention to restore proper fasting. So when we're with Christ, when the disciples were with Christ, there's no need to fast because there's no desperation there. Christ was in front of them. But the moment that Christ leaves, that's where the desperation starts to grow. Where are you? Where can we get answers? We long to see you. We long for you. How do we best do this? Through fasting. Um, I was at a funeral yesterday for a good family friend. Their grandpa passed away. And so he was just sharing the story of how um, they would always work in the yard and then they would go get a Coke and sit on the swing and just talk. And I loved the line. He said, my grandpa used to tell me jokes, but the jokes got better the older I got, which is just funny because you know what that means. Grandpa was a little dirty. He was just cracking me up. So um, the point, though, that as Jay was telling about his grandpa was now that my grandpa isn't here, I have to make time to go to that swing and sit and remember. So we see this imagery perfectly that when the disciples were with Christ, just as Jay was with his grandpa, there's no need to fast because you're sitting in the presence of him. But now that Jay's grandpa has passed away, it's now his responsibility. He's going to take away the distractions, take away um, everything that's going around. He's going to be disciplined enough to go back to that swing and sip a Coke and remember the memories that his grandpa had given him. The same way we see this, that it's uh, definitely our responsibility to fast because Christ is no longer with us. So we fast out of desperation, out of longing to be with him again. The second part that we want to see in Acts 13, uh, and we really see it in verse 1, is that they fasted as a church. They fasted as a group. Now there again, if you're in, in Matthew, just flip back to Matthew 6. Because again, we can see that this might be a contradiction, contradiction to what Jesus outlined for us in the instructions of how you fast. That, that can you really fast as a group? Because I thought fasting was something that you needed to do in secret. You need to do in private. So Matthew 16, verse 1 says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Skip down to verse 15. Or 16, excuse me. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the other hypocrites, for they disfigure their face when they are fasting, so they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head with oil, wash your face, then your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what we see here then, is it, is it okay to fast as a group? Is it okay for us to fast as a church? Well, the church at Antioch did. The, the problem isn't corporately fasting together. The problem is when we're fasting for attention. I've, I've been with people who just love the fact that they want everyone to know that they're fasting, right? Um, where are you guys going to lunch? I want to go to lunch with you guys, and then we get to lunch and they just drink of water. Oh, I'm fasting. It's like, bro, we don't want you here. Go, go back to your fasting, right? Like, don't be that guy. What Scripture's saying in, in Matthew 9, uh, 1 is don't be the person that looks for attention out of your disciplines, that looks for attention because you're fasting. Because really, when you're fasting, it, you don't need to be with people. You need to be studying word and prayer, meditating on Scriptures. So if there's a way for you to get out of lunch, to get out of breakfast or dinner, whatever you're doing when you're fasting, do it. Don't be looking for attention here. 
Fasting is not for you to gain to reward. It's this desperation for Christ to move in you and through you. So is it okay to corporately fast as a group? Yes, of course it is. But when this group starts to look for attention because of this fast, that's where sin enters in. So the third point that we want to see, and this is where things start to blow up here a little bit. Uh, Acts 13, 1 through 3 outlined something huge here that if we understand, if we get, it'll start to change how we live. That allowed them, fasting allowed them to hear the Holy Spirit clearly. That because of fasting, they had clarity in what they were supposed to do. So, so I don't really know how long this process was. Uh, when they were gathered together, they were worshiping, they were fasting, and they were praying. I don't, I don't understand um, biblically how long this process was, but here's what was taking place. They're seeking the will of God for what is he asking them to do. One of the most frustrating and hard things for me, just as a pastor, but as an individual, is when the Bible stops, right? Like, I just wish sometimes it would be so crystal clear. These maps in the back would be so crystal clear that like, oh, here's Gabe's map to decide if he's going to move or not, right? I mean, how easy would it be for the McCords? Do the McCords move to St. Louis? Uh, Psalms 22? Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, I just wish it was in the Bible so I would know. I'm just up talking about the McCords. I just keep screwing that up. But so anyways, it's when the Bible stops, then what then do we do? Because people say, yeah, the Bible is a roadmap to life. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but, but not every decision, not every thought, not every um, big idea for us is how we lead and frame what God is asking us to do is mapped out clearly in Scripture. And so we see them coming together, praying. What, what do you think was going through their minds? Now that we're a church, now that we're established, what then do we do next? Where do we reach out to? What is our mission field? What are we trying to accomplish? Why did God place us here? God, what would you have us to do? When you start asking these questions, this sense of urgency and desperation starts to well up inside of you. And so these guys are stopping everything. They're worshiping, they're praying, and they're fasting because they're trying to decide. And we felt this as a church. We felt when God opened the door for us to plant a church in Milledgeville, by all contemporary thinking, that is a horrible idea. We are such a small church. We have no funding for them. We don't even know what we're doing here. Why would it make sense for us to try to do it there? So when we start to look at Scripture, man, like wisdom is folly, and what does this really look like? But at the end of the day, God made it so obvious for us as we're fasting, we're longing because we don't know the answer, God. You have to speak so that we know what to do. And how much of longing and desperation is going on in our hearts right now? Let me me ask a different way. Who do you go to when you have a question? When there seems to be a gray area in your life, who do you run to first? Who do you seek wisdom from? Or do I move here? Do I change my degree? What about this job opportunity? This or this or this? Who are we running to for these answers? Because I love most of you. Just kidding. I love you guys. But, but we're not God. We're not the spirit. We don't have the end all of wisdom. So when we're desperate for an answer. We're desperate for God to speak on some of these gray matters. What then do we do? We fast. We stop, we pray, we listen. One commentator said this about the church at Antioch. They were hungry enough for God's leading that they wanted to say, say it with their hunger of their bodies and not just the hunger of their hearts. We want your leading, O God, O Holy Spirit. What is your will for the mission of his church? 
But here's what we do, and, and I'll just be, again, candid. When I walk into elders meeting, when I walk into staff meeting, any kind of leadership meeting, the temptation is to let's talk things out, let's decide, let's us decide. But what we see scripturally is we should stop, we should pray, we should worship, and we should fast, and then go home. That's, that's what we should do. We should be more concerned with stopping and praying and listening to what the Lord says instead of trying to develop all these strategies and visions and how are we going to accomplish this. We should stop. We should worship. We should pray. And we, we see this clearly. Second Chronicles 20 really has just kind of messed up my framework this week. You don't have to flip there. I'm just going to recap. And go, I mean, definitely write that down and read it later. Because you've got Judah and Jehoshaphat leading this charge uh, because they're being attacked from multiple different armies. And so um, they get brought into this one building. They're being surrounded by these three different armies. And what do they do? I mean, you look at all the good generals, uh, all the good soldiers that we've seen grow up through uh, over history and in America. And one of the most defining things about good leadership is they're quick on their feet. They just have a good intuition to know, here's what we do now that everything is going wrong, that the armies are coming against us, here's the orders, go. And the ones that we remember are the ones that make the right call. The ones we don't remember, they died, right? Like they lost the war. So Jehoshaphat is being surrounded by the whole the army of Judah is being surrounded. And what do they do? They bring all the soldiers together. They worship, they pray, and they fast. Now that just blows my mind. I mean, who's just action-oriented in here? Okay, so I'm about to be murdered by these soldiers. Let's stop and fast for a while. Let's stop and pray for a little bit. Mmm, that just does not line up with my DNA. No, let's go start busting some skulls. Sorry for being graphic. Let's go murder people. Right? I mean, that, that's war. That is what they're trying to decide is, do we go out and attack? So they stopped and they prayed. And who knows the rest of the story? that while they're praying and fasting, the different armies start fighting with each other. And when they finally came out, everyone was dead. Everyone. It took the army three days to collect the spoils of all the dead. So as they're going around and, and taking back armor and taking jewels and taking um, swords, it took them three days to collect all this stuff. And they never lifted a sword in battle. Why? It would be hard for us to say, oh, no, that's just a coincidence. No, it's because they stopped, they fasted, and they prayed for God to move. And he did. And we could say, okay, well, that's just, that's just biblical. That's not actually real. No, we'll see in a minute that there's real-life examples in history where things changed. So I would just argue on this point, if you're struggling to hear the voice of the Lord, if you're struggling for clarity for the next direction in your life, if, if you're desperate to hear the voice of God, chances are he's trying to speak, but you're just not listening. That you're listening to every single voice around you but the one that matters, which is Christ through fasting and praying. Now here's where things just start to get crazy. Because of what we see in Acts 13, again, just a simple three verses, right? The church prayed, they worshiped, and they fasted. But because we, what we see here, the rest of history as we know it has changed because of this one time of fasting and prayer. Because of just the simple act of fasting and praying at the church of Antioch, 
everything in the course of history has changed. And here's what I mean. If you study the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12 is about the Jewish church, right? So Christ is expanding. He's growing his church in the Jewish sector. But then we see the tides turn in Acts 13 where the church starts to expound upon the Gentiles and upon the Greeks and the Romans. And we see this massive revival take place throughout. Within two and a half centuries, there's 1.3 billion Christians. Let me take a step back. Two and a half centuries. 1.3 billion Christians just because of this fast. Just take a moment to think about that. Because they fasted and they prayed, they were so desperate for God to do something in their midst. They fasted, they prayed. We see clearly, verse 3, that they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and sent them out. Because of that one small decision, 1.3 billion people came to know Christ. 13 out of the 27 uh, uh, New Testament books were written because of this one fast. That if Paul would not have gone, if he wouldn't go to Asia Minor, if he wouldn't go to Greek, Greece, Rome, if he wouldn't have gone to Spain and gone westward in this moment, then we would not have 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament Bible. But just let that sit in for a moment. You cannot tell me that the the course of history was not changed because of this one simple fast. So do we believe that fasting leads to something? It it would be hard-pressed not to. I mean, how can we not see this? Okay, so let's, uh, that's just the Bible, Pastor. That's not real life. 1756, that's real life, right? Britain, France. France is about to invade Britain. So what do they do? They fast. They pray. The king of Britain called for a day of solemn prayer and fasting. And this is what John Wesley says. The fast day was a glorious day, such as London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer. Surely God heareth prayer, and there will be yet a lengthening of our tranquility. So here's John Wesley describing this day of prayer and fasting that the king orchestrated because he was so afraid that France was going to invade Britain and they were all going to die. So later, Wesley added a footnote. Humility was turned into national rejoicing for the threatened invasion of the French was averted. So yes, we can see, we can argue with you that Acts 13 totally changed the course of history. But John Wesley is making a point that that happened between France and Britain. That when the king ordered a national day of fasting and prayer that this war was averted. And I just don't see how we cannot come back to the logical conclusion then that it was all because of this fast. Or, or what about Jesus in the garden, or not in the garden, Jesus in the desert. Forty days he fasted and prayed. Didn't sin. Do you not think that that one moment changed the course of history? That that was a foreshadowing, a defeating Satan that was going to happen on the cross. It's going to happen when he comes back. That fasting changes the things, church. That this desperation, this longing that we have for Christ to do something comes into fruition through fasting. And the course of history can change. So, so here's, that's kind of some, some big picture stuff. Let's get real like nuts and bolts on some fasting things. Here's, here's how I would say, um, yes, pastor, you've convinced me. I see it biblically. I want to start fasting. What do I do? Uh, the first thing I would argue is start small. 
I know a lot of you guys, you're overambitious and your first day is going to be like a 60-day fast. Stop it. Don't do that. That's, you're you're going to die. That's not going to work. It's going to be the worst experience ever. You're, it's, so start with a meal. I, mean, I, I would argue, just, just pick a meal and start with a meal. If you want to get into this, again, fasting is a discipline. Our disciplines grow. If you want to have this fantastic retirement, you cannot put your entire paycheck away today. You would starve. But you could start with a little bit and let that grow and grow and grow in the same way with fasting. Start with a meal. And take your Bible, take a notebook, and plead with the Lord through this fasting. Pick a subject. What are you desperate for? What are you longing for? One of the key things that we see throughout Scripture is they were fasting for a certain topic. Jehoshaphat was fasting for wisdom. How do we do this? Acts 13, they were fasting. How do we, what do you want this church to be, God? Choose a something that you're longing for, that you're desperate for. The other side of it, too, just to get you started and maybe even continuing, is fasting doesn't always have to be food right? I mean, for some of us, if we say we're going to, I mean, this is just, this is, maybe this is just me. I'm the only one in the room, but here we go. Um, there's this voice in the back of my head every time I go to fast, go, man, that's cool. I'm going to drop some weight that day, right? That's a horrible motive for fasting. So what is it within your day that takes up a lot of time? Now, I'll, I'll just be candid. Um, like Facebook and Instagram videos suck me in dry. The office sucks me in. Anyone else? I mean, there's just like no other addiction that I have than The Office and Michael Scott. I just love the man. I love the show. I can watch hours of things. I can neglect my family so that I can watch Jim and Pam have theirs. That is the seriousness of my addiction to Netflix. So when we fast as elders, we fast on Wednesdays. My fast is not from food. My fast is from videos, from technology. I just, I just don't. And in those moments where I'm longing to be fulfilled by videos, I go, no, no. Let's take some scripture. No, no, I'm going to get away and pray. So you don't have to fast necessarily from food. When you fast, when you commit to this, don't quit. There's going to be every part of you that's going to feel like quitting when that hunger comes in. Uh, we see Matthew 4, 4 that Jesus teaches us. We're not, we're not um, here for bread, but we live on every voice or every word from the Lord. That is what fasting is. So as you start to fast, remember this is a feast. We get to feast on the Lord through his word. Don't quit. When you do fast, don't, don't waste your time in that fast. As you're praying, as you have new time because you're skipping your lunch break or you're I'm not going to dinner with your friends, don't just not do that and continue life as normal, but use that time to stop, to pray, to read, to long for his truth. So here's just kind of this, this wild idea, and I haven't ran it by the elder, so uh, I might stand up in two weeks and go, nope, never mind, we're not doing this, but I don't think they would mind. Here, we as elders, we had this retreat this last weekend, Friday and Saturday, and just stopped to pray and consider what are we doing as a church? How healthy are we? What are the one or two things that we really feel like God wants us to focus on this next year? Uh, now as a four-year-old church, every summer before now, um, we've just really started over from scratch. Nothing's working. Let's throw it all out and rebuild it again. This is the first summer where our structures are actually working. We have good leadership in place. It's just going. So now that we're up and going, now that we're um, not potty training anymore, we're walking on our own, what then does it look like? Where are we going to structure? What help do we need? What's our main focus? 
And we all know that we don't run a normal calendar year. Because we're in a college town, we're very fiscally minded. So our season, if you will, is from August to May. This is kind of our downtime. This is our lull time, right? So here's, here's my thought. For every Wednesday in the month of August, I would love, out of desperation and hunger for God, to do something massive in our midst that we would see actually a dent take place in this 26,000 tally marks, that God would move in such a way that none of us can go, oh yeah, it's because of that strategic team meeting that we had. Because No, it's just going to be a massive move of God that we cannot explain, that we would see salvation after salvation after salvation for the glory of God, that we would do a sun-up to sundown fast every Wednesday for the month of August. Now, joke's on you because there's five Wednesdays in August, Right? <laughs> It's like, oh, great, I picked the best month to do this. Can we do a Tuesday because there's only four? No. Sun up to sundown. So we're going to keep pressing this and encouraging us to do this. But here's what this means. Um, you've got a couple weeks to prepare. So if we're going to do a sun up to sundown, it's not a full 24 hours, I would encourage you for the next couple Wednesdays, fast a meal. And then once you get that fast, two meals. Go ahead and prepare your body for what's the coming because in August, we're going to fast and we're going to pray out of desperation for God to move here. That's what we're longing for, right? I mean, if we don't, if we don't want to see a move of God, if we don't really think that God can actively do that, then, then what are we doing here? What are we doing? So when well, I'll, I'll kind of close with this. This is where fasting or uh, fasting, <clears throat> there's a guy I was about to read a quote from named Richard Foster. So Foster and fasting is... Fausting. Um, <clears throat> just so you know, uh, I'll read this quote just to, to help us understand this before I move on. That more than anything, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple, longs to be and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So as we start this fasting process, one of the things that's going to come up is we're going to see what truly controls us. Is it comfort? Is it food? Is it attention from people? We'll quickly learn what actually controls us. So when I was at Georgia Southern, I had a, uh, at the time, it seemed like a massive decision. It really wasn't. Uh, I had two options to do a summer camp uh, again throughout the summer um, or to go intern at another church during one summer. And so I came in, okay, like I'm longing for an answer. God, what would you have me to do? So, um, you know, this wise sophomore in college, I was like, okay, I'll do a three-day fast. Never fasted before. Let's go right into this and do a three-day fast. Uh, one of the things I would encourage you not to do is my fast had ending, ended at dark on that third day, um, and we had a bunch of people over just to hang out because that's what college students do. And we had one girl that baked banana bread loaves and I ate three of those at the end of my three-day fast, um, one for each day. And that was the worst decision I probably made in my entire life. Don't do that. When you start to come off fast, like eat light, uh, maybe like some fruits and broth and vegetables. Because if you go hard right into banana bread, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to end well for you. I'll just leave it a little vague, but don't, don't do that. Fasted, so my fast broke, right? Like ate all of the banana bread, felt awful. But what was the most worst, or was the worst feeling is that God didn't speak. I'd done this three-day fast, and I still had no clarity about what the Lord wanted me to do. So I'm laying in bed that night, one, just miserable because of my tummy, but, but two, just going like, man, if this is fasting, like, this just doesn't work. Like I thought if I were to fast, if I was longing, if I was desperate for the Lord to speak, then, then I would have had an answer by now. So this fasting thing is just for the birds. So I woke up the next morning, 
And just like those branch road signs that we have at the front door, I had, a, it was called a power plant was the camp that I was considering to work for again for a third summer. I had one of those road signs just up above my window, um, tastefully decorated like most college students' rooms are. Right, just a road sign on the wall, and the, the first thing, I'm, the moment I opened my eyes, which if you know me, I'm not a morning person. I don't focus on anything. I'm just grumpy and miserable till I eat breakfast. But the first thing that God opened my eyes and allowed me to see was this power plant sign. It was just this clear day. Yeah, do it again. That is the first thing that you've seen after a three-day fast. That is me clearly speaking to you. Do it again. Now, I don't say that to say like, oh, yeah, like that's probably one of the few fasting wins that I've ever experienced. But here's what I'm saying. I was so desperate for the Lord to speak, and he did. So as we take communion this morning, as we close with this idea of fasting, here's my question. Fasting is not going to make any difference in our life unless we are desperate for him. So are you desperate for him? Are you desperate for God to do something in our midst? Are you desperate for God to reconcile relationships? Are you so hungry for him that you're constantly praying, that you're petitioning him for him to break in and change things? Psalm 42, 1 through 2 says this, and this is what I want us to focus on through communion. As a deer pants for following streams, so my pants, or my pants, my soul for you. Let me try that again. Sorry. Jeez Louise. As a deer pants for following streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. I mean, so this is, oh yeah, this deer pants for the water. We've heard this. I think I've got a shirt with that. No. The deer is desperate. If I don't get water, I will die. My soul thirsts for this living God. What are we desperate for? What are we panting for? Because I'm telling you, if we start this fasting process and there's no sense of desperation, there's no sense of, um, if, if you do not show up in this situation, God, if you do not give me an answer, I will surely die. We will see no fruit from fasting. So my question, as we take communion, as we literally break the bread, which represents his body, as we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood, we understand the desperation, the measures that he took on the cross for us. Do we really long to see that happen here? I mean, we could take communion, we could celebrate, we can worship, but does this worship lead to, man, there's 26,000 within a 20-minute drive that don't know Jesus? Is that, are we desperate for that? Are we okay with being us four and no more? Are we okay with being just this little holy huddle that, that never actively does anything in the community? We just got this little good thing going on and we'll keep it here. Are we desperate to see God save souls? Because as we take communion, how can we say, thank you for saving me, but not be concerned with the salvation of others? So let's pray. God, would you stir up a desperation in our hearts that is so obvious? Father, would you forgive us when our soul doesn't long for you? That we have so many comforts around us. We have so many wise friends and books and things that we can determine our own life from. We are never desperate to hear an answer from you. Father, many of us have not heard your voice, your leading, or your prompting in years or decades because we're not carving out the time to listen. 
We had an initial desperation, a longing for you to save us from our sins. But we have not been desperate or longing for anything since. Father, would you show us how desperately we need you? We're longing for you to do something in our midst. Father, I know that we have things in our personal lives that if you don't intervene, nothing will change. And we are tired of trying to find our own solutions and our own answers to everything that you've given to us. Father, we don't, we don't know where to turn anymore. That if we could have solved this issue, it would have already been solved. Father, what you're doing in love is showing us how desperate we need you. And Father, as a church, as we prepare for this uh, fast through the month of August, uh, let us be desperate. Let us long for you. That when we say, when we pray that your kingdom come here, we mean it that you would restore, that you would heal, that you would save. Father, we are so distracted by all the things around us. Father, let us fast, let us pray, let us worship to see what's most important to you. Let us pant for the water that if you don't show up, we will die. Father, let us long for you like we never have before. Because we want to. We need you. We want to see you move. We're desperate for it in our lives, in our marriage, in our relationships, in our church, in this town, through the church planning network, through the state of Georgia, through the southeast, through the world. Father, we desperately want to see you move. As we take communion this morning, we know your love for us. We know how desperately you want to speak to us. You've given us your word as a primary way for us to hear from you. So we're going to let us not walk into this idea of fasting out of a have to, but as a get to, that we get to hear from you, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As we take communion this morning as believers, would you stir up a longing and desperation for you that can only come from you? Just in your name we pray. Amen.